0: What's the thesis for $100 an ounce silver? And how did ESG woe's Hand Valley and Rio Tinto major news headlines this week? Welcome to Kickle Roundtable. I'm your host, Michael McCray, and with me is Neil Christensen. Hello. Happy Friday, everybody. Correspondent Paul Harris. Hello, everybody. And with us is George Salamis. He is president and CEO of Integra Resources. Integra made some good news this week. We want to save that for later, George. But maybe you can recap Integra. What's your team up to, and what are you focused on?
1: Yeah. So, and thanks for inviting me on the podcast. By the way, it's it's a pleasure. So, so essentially, just to kind of set the stage here, Integra Resources is is essentially the same team um, that brought you Integra Gold, and you know, for for some of your listeners who might remember that was. You know, a great story that had a great ending in terms of driving a sort of exploration company, $20 million market capitalization, exploration in Northern Quebec, uh, exploring like other explorers on a wing and a prayer. And, you know, things things worked out really well for the company. Within the period of about five years, we turned $20 million of, uh, of market capitalization into a $600 million sale to El Dorado. And essentially that mining operation is working out very, very well for them, which is, a rarity, right? Usually, these 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 end end badly in a lot of tears. You know, the landscapes littered with the burning wrecks of junior mining companies who have tried to build stuff, uh, but that one worked out very well. So, same team uh, that did that this time in Idaho. Same playbook, advanced stage, uh, past producing asset owned by a major mining company, now owned by us. Um, same focus, different place
0: uh George we really want to get into it because it really has been an active week uh, there's been a lot of deals have been happening in this space and we want uh we want to get your thoughts on it and of course what happened at Florida Mountain but first we start with Niels and um i, I think you uh, might be bringing the uh, cheerfulness quotient down uh, what's happening with gold right now Niels? i, I, I don't know
2: maybe skip me because yeah it's not uh hasn't been a pleasant week we you know we hit we started off really well and then we just, you know, hit that hit resistance at the at the 50-day moving average, and the market just collapsed. And now we're 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 ending this week below 1850 an ounce, you know, which has been that critical support area. Now it's that critical resistance, and it just uh, talking to some people, there's just there's this really there's this feeling of apathy in the marketplace right now, and and I don't know how we get. Through it, especially now, like this should be a really positive time for the gold market. You know, gold really does well midway through December, uh, all the way until, you know, February, early March, stuff like that. So we're, we're entering a, a really positive seasonal period, but there's just this feeling of indifference over the market.
0: You had a nice study today talking about uh, the analyst report where we uh, take uh, the temperature of uh, the uh, people in the market. Uh, Analysts uh, were quite uh, bearish on what was happening with gold, but uh, Main Street seems to be quite positive uh, with what was happening.
2: Yeah, so that's our weekly gold survey. And and again, like this this mixed sentiment in the marketplace, Uh, retail investors are bullish, Uh, Wall Street analysts are bearish. Um, i think they really want to get through next week next week is kind of a big week it's you know it's the electoral college vote it's the federal reserve uh, monetary policy meeting the last one of the year and um yeah and it's the last next week is the last full trading week of 2020 so i think you know if we can get past that with these levels maybe there's a chance that uh you know we start we start the new year off uh, you know on a uh, solid
0: footing Go ahead, Paul.
3: Is there an element, you think that, you know, it's been a long, tough year and people are just exhausted and, you know, looking forward to the holiday season and having a break and just, you know, starting to tune out, turn off, waiting to come back for the new year? I,
2: I think so. But it's just like, you know, like the ECB announced new fiscal measure, uh, uh, sorry, uh, new stimulus measures yesterday uh, on Thursday. And okay, yes, they were underwhelming, but gold just didn't react to any of that. Um, you know, they didn't react to the news that uh, they, you know, they, they, the ECB doesn't really see strong economic growth until, you know, the end of 2021. Uh, usually that would have, you know, boosted gold up, you know, a good 10 bucks, 20 bucks, something like that. I do think, I do think people are probably getting tired and they may be turning off their screens, but um, the people who are paying attention—they're just not really. They—they uh, they don't. Not, I don't know what's going to shake them out of this,
1: George. Yeah, could, could it be, Niels, that that you know the, the sort of the risk-on, risk-off nature of gold is really focusing on, on back, things like vaccines, uh, you know, pandemic recovery, looking looking out over the next six to twelve months on what that's going to look like and really not looking at sort of the key fundamentals that really drive gold in the end of the day, which is, you know, money printing, uh, low interest rates, and maybe some looming inflation on that uh, horizon.
2: Yeah, I think that's part of it. I think also too, it's just, it's kind of the same message because like, yeah, okay, vaccines are coming, but we got to get through the next six months kind of thing, you know, and that's, and that's going to be stimulus. That's going to be low interest rates. And that's going to be inflation. when When things do pick up, and people start shopping again, um, I think, you know, that's when we're going to see inflation. So it's, you know, like, so I, I, but this is the message that we've been talking about since November. So I think maybe there is this, you know, the apathy, because it's, it's the same message. We're not getting anything new, um, especially with stimulus talks. I mean, they they're kind of breaking down in Congress again um, as we head into the weekend. And I don't even know if they're going to be able to fund the government. Uh, the, the, the deadline is today uh, to fund government for uh, for until September.
4: Let's
0: talk to somebody that was definitely bullish. Uh, you had a big interview with uh, Thomas Kaplan, Niels. Uh, who is he? Why does he like silver? And what is he doing about it? He loves silver.
2: This was so he actually, Thomas Kaplan is a billionaire who made his bones in the silver market started with uh, silver options, a $10,000 bet on silver options in 1993, turned that into uh, uh, one of the largest zinc silver mines in Bolivia, in the world, in Bolivia. And um, in November, he came back to the silver market. He launched a new uh, um, uh, public silver company, uh, Gato silver based in Mexico. Um, and interesting, uh, in Idaho, uh, he also talked about uh, an, a project in Idaho, the Sunshine Mine, um, which he's currently working on. That's actually private still. That's part of the uh, electorum group, his, his company that he funded. Um, it was just a really, really interesting interview to talk to him about um, his thoughts on silver and gold. And he's just basically bullish because of all of this money printing and debt and, you know, the question of what is money and how do you preserve your wealth?
3: Paul? I listened to the interview and I thought it was very good. And uh, Tom um, talked about his preference for keeping exploration companies private until they've advanced quite a way. Um, you know, he said, you know, he wants, if he makes a discovery, he wants to keep it to himself and have it to himself. But if he doesn't discover anything, he doesn't want anybody to know about it. it makes a lot of sense. But he, he came out with what was arguably the most bizarre quote of the year. Talking about this, he said something like, you garner a reputation by making sausages in darkness. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I like it. Yeah, You don't want
2: to know how the sausages are made. So he prefers to make the sausages in the dark. I like that.
0: <laughs> I want to get on to juniors because uh, there is just so much uh, that uh, there's to cover in the space right now. Uh, while the money might be flowing out of the gold sector, lots of good news, lots of deals. Uh, Paul, uh, let's talk about Moneta and it turned some heads this week
3: yes um, Moneta porcupine mines uh, reported a 217 percent increase in its contained gold in a, an updated mineral resource estimate for its uh, golden highway project in Ontario Canada um, it boosts its the update boosts its uh, underground and open pit indicated resources to 2.1 million ounces and combined underground inferred resource of uh, 3.3 million ounces so a big uh, a big update for them it's um, so, a so, so stock that that um, trades at a very low uh, share price, so um, that they got quite a big boost from that, from $0.12 cents to about $0.18, cents, I think, so a meaningful update from them.
0: Brownfields would be uh, definitely a 100-year-old mine in northern British Columbia. That's the old premier mine near Stewart. What's uh, Ascot up to?
3: Yes, Ascot raised uh, or put together a $105 million US project financing package to develop uh, its premier gold project there in the... Uh, the golden triangle with Sprott and uh, and BD together with an equity financing. It did earlier in the year. It's got the funds it needs to start the ordering the long time lead time equipment, pre-construction activities and and such like. Um, Ascot is looking at producing a peak of about 180,000 ounces a year of gold equivalent uh, from Premier and Red Mountain. Um, So again, very positive news there. Another mine looks like it's going to start construction.
0: Uh, if you're following along, uh, Stuart is just uh, at the end of the Alaskan Panhandle, uh, also in that area that's close to the operating mine, Predium. Uh, and Mike Allen's Eclipse was embraced by Northern Vertex. Michael Allen, of course, headed up on Northern Empire, which was bought out by Core Mining uh, in the last decade. What's uh, happened between Vertex and Eclipse?
3: Yeah, a lot of uh, people in the market have been talking about the need to consolidate and, and, you know, where is M&A going to come? And a lot of people think it's going to be sort of lower down the list, the smaller companies. And this is perhaps an example. So Northern Vertex Mining um, agreed to combine in Clips Gold. The combined market cap at the moment is about 180, 190 million dollars. It's an at the market merger, um, which will pair Northern Vertex's producing Moss Mine in Arizona with Eclipse Gold's um, exploration projects at the northern end of the, the Walker Lane trend in Nevada. Um, Moss produced a record sort of 14, almost 15,000 ounces gold equivalent in the September quarter, and the company's en route to produce 100,000 ounces a year. So this adds uh, another exploration project in their pipeline. But um, the, the the project that. Uh, Eclipse Gold brings; it's called Hercules, but that's a relatively early stage project. I believe it's pre-resource, so it's quite an unusual transaction from that point of view.
0: Uh, George Integra Resources sees strong potential for resource expansion. What's Florida Mountain? What did you find?
1: Yeah, Mike, we we put out this week uh, certainly, in my view, the best uh, set of exploration results we we ever have since we've been on the project in the last three years, and you know, interesting. Interesting thing that uh, that's come to pass drilling underneath Florida mountain. So we've got, you know, on on the project, a total of 3.9 million ounces of of measured indicated resource and a further half million ounces of inferred of that 1.1 million ounces is Florida mountain. So we've got this large uh, bulk tonnage uh, disseminated gold silver deposit at the top of Florida mountain. What these results are represent really is, is us, you know, taking stabs in the dark underneath the the resource estimate, where where no other modern explorers have explored previously. Now we know that there's been a long history of high grade production dating back to the late 1800s. There, with you know, second to the California Gold Rush, one of the largest gold rushes into the, the Western U.S. has been in this area. Um, however, there was no there's no modern data to to support that. So. Over the course of the summer, we've been drilling underneath the, the resource and getting these you know, spectacular results. And the headline here was 7.9 grams uh, gold equivalent over 85.35 meters. So you know, call it 8 grams over 85 meters. You, you don't hit those sorts of uh, grades and thicknesses every day. And yeah, there were some higher grade intervals that were thinner there. But essentially what we're putting to what we're fleshing out here is a high grade system underneath a low grade system that's not in any resource category, it's well outside of the resource boundary. And uh, we're starting to get a better handle on how that high grade comes to pass from a geological and structural uh, perspective to the extent that our hit rate well below the resource up to 250 meters is, is 60% plus, which is really good from an exploration perspective. So yeah, that's kind of what's coming together there. There's, there's definitely, uh, we believe uh, a high grade resource to be fleshed out there.
0: Congratulations on your team there, George.
1: Thank you.
0: Thank you. Uh, lastly, the Supreme Court of Spain dismisses an appeal against authorization for Berkeley Energy's uranium mine project that's located in Western Spain. In July 2016, Berkeley published the results of a definitive feasibility study confirming the Salamanca project that will be one of the world's lowest cost uranium producers. News of the Court Decision sent Berkeley shares up by a third. Uranium all around is doing better. Uh, Bellwether Cameco is at a three-year high. Switching to mining, I think we should do a segment on miners that break through to major news headlines. And if they do, it seems to be environmental, social, governance issues. See pebble from the last few weeks. This week, Valet and Rio Tinto. Brazilian minor valet said on Thursday that it has halted operations on the Pacific island of New Caledonia after pro-independence protests nearby and that the military forces are guarding the evacuated plant, and that's according to reporting by Reuters. Social media shows pictures of riot police, protesters, and fires. The mine has become tied up and the island's independence push, indigenous Kennex seeking independence and well-off mostly white settlers wanting to stay with France as the Guardian writes. Valet sold interest in the mine recently. Both camps have competing ownership preferences and with nickel prices expected to go higher due to EVs. The tussle has become fraught. An inquiry panel said on Wednesday that Rio Tinto should pay restitution for the destruction of two ancient rock shelters to expand an iron ore mine. That, according to Reuters, what the fine should be was not covered. The inquiry is still carrying out its work. That destruction happened in May and cost the job of Rio Tinto's jean Sebastian Jacques, as well as two other senior executives. The story has been prominent and well covered. Newmont updated its 2025 outlook. Production guidance is 6.5 million ounces. Mid-20s, it sees that uh, ticking up to 6.5 to 7 million ounces. What is uh, interesting note is the all-sustaining costs. Currently at 970, that's going to be dropping down to 800 to 900. Also on ESG, the company expects to spend half a billion on climate initiatives through to 2025. Kirkland Lake is seeing a bit more of a production jump Due to its acquisition with Detour Lake, gold output should be hitting 7%, and that's going to be 1.4 to 1.54. Sorry, should be up 7%, and that will be hitting 1.4 to 1.5 million ounces by 2023. And then Wheaton Precious Metals is putting its money to work once again and announced a new streaming agreement with Capstone Mining Corporation. Friday, the Precious Metal streaming company said that would pay Capstone $150 million for 50% of its silver production, up from 10 million ounces. The agreement then falls to 33% of production for the rest of the mine life, the company said. And that goes back, of course, uh, Niels, uh, when you had your uh, interview with uh, Randy Smallwood talking about that uh, he did want to start making some more deals. He just has
2: nothing but cash. I think, I think this is going to be a fantastic environment for juniors because these companies, as we've seen from the third quarter, like they have nothing but cash, and you know like they, they need to grow.
0: Uh, let's get into this uh, right now, and that's why I really it's a question that uh, we have one more piece of news that we want to get here, but um, I'm just going to put a pin it for a minute, but uh, George, uh, what's this deal-making environment looking like?
1: Uh, it's it's looking great for the same reasons that that Niels is as sort of highlighted. You know, the, the backdrop of now essentially is you've got major mining companies who are producing gold predicated on mine plans that were done a year or two years ago at 1300 dollars 1400 dollars gold, producing into an 1800 dollars 1900 dollars gold plus $20 silver environment. They're making money hand over fist. And um, they're wiping out debt from by all accounts to the tune of about 30% per quarter. So there'll come a time next year where there'll be no more debt to wipe out. There'll come a time next year where they'll get, I believe, pretty sick of paying out special dividends, right, uh, to, to their shareholders, you know, in the absence of, of other things to do with their cash. Uh, they'll come under pressure to to uh, expand their, their portfolio production and they'll turn to their own pipelines of projects and they'll notice that they're bare. And uh, that's when the M&A market is going to sort of get rolling, we believe sometime by mid-year next year. And it's companies, again, not not to tout Integra resources too much, but it's companies with those advanced stage assets, the advanced explorers, the junior developers, uh, especially in tier one jurisdictions with big resource assets that I believe will sort of come into the crosshairs of the, the major gold producers, ultimately.
0: Niels?
2: So I wanted to ask, George, I mean, sort of the argument between, like, buying production and rebuilding your own, you know, in-house exploration team. Mm. Um, it, like, is that an option? Or is it really, like, at this point, you know, if you want to get something, you need to buy it?
1: Yeah, so... You can do that. Major mining companies can do that. You know, but I, I worked for major mining companies for years and we had exploration teams. The, the problem is starting from scratch um, on rebuilding an exploration team internally within these major mining companies who have essentially not been doing exploration on their own. They've been relying on the juniors to find them things. Starting from scratch takes time. You know, you, you it, it takes years and years to develop the expertise. It takes years to deploy these people all over the planet to find resources. And so that those are probably lower cost um, ounces for these companies, but ultimately, if they want to get there quickly, they're going to again have to look to these advanced explorer or junior developer companies.
0: George has uh, the softness in uh, the uh, precious metal prices, uh, perhaps moved uh, M and A a little bit forward. Uh, you know, you're seeing companies are saying, "Well, things might be a little bit cheaper right now. It might be a window before because uh, everybody's saying, you know, money printing." Uh, we're still going to be, uh, we're still that uh, the long-term plan is going to be on uh, precious metal prices going higher.
1: Yeah, I, that's certainly the, our view internally at Integra. We're not, we're not fussed at all by this sort of this, this uh, weakness that we've seen uh, with the gold price lately. Um, you know, long-term, the fundamentals we believe are still there. These assets, big assets are scarce. You know, you put all those things together. I, I think the climate's great going forward, no question.
0: You know, uh, with your background, at Integra, and uh, experiences, this is that uh, you know a lot about marketing uh, juniors uh, into this space and then how to take them forward. Uh, it's been interesting uh, talking to uh, Equinox and uh, some of the others, uh, just talking about the needs for uh, scale and uh, just making something uh, that you have exposure to uh, the uh, how would you say the passive funds? Is there you've been at this for a while? Is there a difference uh, for building, or how do you build a junior in this uh, current environment to attract investment?
1: Yeah, I, I think the uh, this this it's all about the setup um, in terms of building that that company, and there's there's a bunch of things that you know management groups of these juniors need to pay attention to. I believe uh, in particular. You know, and and I view this very much like I view my own investment strategy and I, you know, I own a lot of Integra resources. I've put a lot of my own money into it, but I also invest in a lot of other sort of emerging developer uh, companies that are essentially our peer group. And, and, you know, there's a bit of a hit list there that I that I look at. You know, I I look at balance sheet, for example, you know, do they they have enough money to to carry themselves forward um, at least for a year? And that's pretty key. And, you know, obviously, Integra's got that. Now, are they in a low-risk jurisdiction? I tend to invest more of my money in tier one jurisdictions just because I've been to the tier three jurisdictions before I worked there. I know what they look like and they can be really tough uh, at some stage. Um, the have, I guess the other sort of thing, if you're setting up a junior mining company, is make sure you've got something that's that's scarce and rare. In other words, you know, there are larger assets in tier three jurisdictions, but the tier one jurisdictions like Canada, US, Australia, really big assets. They're, they're really scarce. Um, and these will be the first things to get taken over ultimately and have a large resource base attached to them uh, ultimately. And in the end of the day, again, one of the things that I use in my own portfolio is, you know, bet the horse and bet the jockey. And so the horse is obviously the asset, it's got to be big and in the right location. And then the jockey is the management team. So, you know, have they bet, been there, done that before? And those are the kinds of things that I invest in. And I, I believe that that's the way to build a junior uh, resource company as well.
0: Uh, George, if we're still beating ourselves up against uh, precious metal prices at uh, what is it the low 1800s or even the high 1700s, uh, with your past experience with, uh, mining, um, I mean, these, these are, these are still good prices to be, uh, producing a senior gold miner.
1: Yeah, oh, uh, absolutely. I mean, you know, there was an aspect as Niels was pointing out earlier of, you know, the gold price, uh, Was it dipping below the uh, 60-day average and you know people viewing that the sky is falling, falling? Well, you know, 1850 gold, there's nothing wrong with that. You know, whatever the prevailing silver price is $25 an ounce, nothing at all wrong with that. So um this is a great backdrop to be either in the production game or in you know the the advanced explorer junior junior developer sector for sure. Niels.
0: So
2: I just wanted to ask, I mean, we have expectations of MA picking up, but I wanted to ask, you know, about junior, like in this environment, um, do you think it's feasible for juniors to sort of go forward and, and actually create a mine out of this? I mean, is, is the gold price worth the development risk?
1: Yeah, Nils, that's a great question. I think it's, it's uh, case dependent. In other words, you know, they're really big mining operations that are gonna cost a lot of money in difficult jurisdictions with not a lot of infrastructure. There's a lot of risk tied tied to that premise. And, you know, nobody builds those assets better than the major mining companies. Um, so that involves a lot of risk for juniors should they decide to go down that road. Mm-hmm. If uh, a junior developer sticks with a low risk jurisdiction with, uh, with lots of infrastructure, brownfield site, um, tier one jurisdiction, you know, the risk profile gets, gets certainly smaller on that basis. You have to pick and choose, right? Basically.
3: But uh, to to illustrate that point, you know, look at the issues that uh, Nevada copper has had, for example, they've um, had to come back to the market yet again, another big financing to, to get over the line, to get in, you know, to, to make the operation successful. There's a lot of challenges there.
1: Yes, indeed. That seems to be working though, Paul, right? I mean, from, from the looks of it, they just, they, they needed to finance and they're over that, that hump, so to speak. So
3: yeah. Working capital is for them has been an issue and it's, it's typically an issue for sort of single asset juniors um, because if there are delays in timescales, yep. then you're, you're really hung out there.
0: Yes. One other piece of news uh, that we should do a update on, and that was what was happening at London Gold's uh, Fruta del Norte, uh, Paul.
3: Yes. Um, Fruity del Lundin Gold put out um, sort of guidance for next year for its Fruta del Norte mine in Ecuador, and as part of that, it announced uh, um, 18.6 million US uh, throughput expansion, um, which will increase its capacity by 20% from 3,500 tons a day to 4,200 tons a day. And so with that, the operation will be producing between 380 and 420,000 ounces a year, at an wow. average head grade of 10.4 grams per tonne. Wow. Yeah, wow
1: that's Let's, been a great success. Huh?
3: you like a bit of that uh, Florida <laughs> mountain. yeah?
0: <laughs> Let's turn to our number of week. Uh, that is a figure that uh, we took note of. Uh, we always start with a guest, George, what's your number of the
1: week? Uh, so the number of my number of the week is zero <laughs> and uh, zero as in the number of new gold mines being built by major mining companies in the U S right now, zero. I had this discussion with somebody uh, the other day, you know, do you know of any projects? New new mining new mines that are being built in in the U.S., particularly the Western U.S. by any of the majors. And uh, n- neither of us could think of any. Yes, there are some expansions of existing mines that are underway, but nothing that's really new um, out there. So, yeah, zero is my number of the day, Mike.
0: <laughs> Paul, what's your number of the week?
3: I've got a couple, but I'll stick with this one: six hundred and sixty or $660 million to be more precise. There, there was a great Bloomberg story this week about um, a small group of independent oil traders out of Essex in the UK. That um, on April the 20th, when uh, WTI, West Texas, Texas Intermediate Oil Price, went negative $38, $40, they made a killing. They netted about $660 million um, on that day through a combination of trading settlements and and selling at regular WTI contracts. Um, And a couple of the traders made a hundred million each.
1: Whoa.
2: (laughs) I want to see gold prices go negative. I I wouldn't mind somebody paying me to, uh, to store gold. (laughs) You know, I can't believe oil prices went negative. That's just,
3: yeah.
0: Uh, Neil's your number of the week. Uh, Mine is mine's
2: historical Uh, 360 million. And that is that is the number of mal- 360 million ounces of silver came out of the Sunshine Mine in in Idaho. This is the uh, this is the private project that uh, the Electrum Group, uh, Thomas Kaplan's uh, company is is working on. And they back in 2007, I think it had like reserves of like 30 million. Um, he said uh, in our conversation that he's they that through exploration, the stuff they've 200 uh, million ounces now in, in uh, reserves. So that was the biggest silver mine in US history. And I think it it still has a lot of life. Oh,
0: My number of the week is uh, partially a bullish uh, for precious metals. That's 13%. Uh, the World Platinum Investment Council is forecast that Chinese platinum jewelry demand will go 13% year on year in 2021, said BMO in a note which expects similar recovery in silver and gold due to, the, due to offsets uh, with ETF outflows. That's it for us. I want to thank George Salamis at Integra. George, what news can investors look forward to over the next 12 months at Integra?
1: Yeah, it's going to be pretty, pretty busy uh, next 12 months for us. So we have three drill rigs in operation on site. Uh, we're going to try and keep at least two drill rigs in operation through the winter months. Um, in terms of our news flow cycle, it's every six to eight weeks. So we come out with uh, with assays. Our hit rate at Florida is obviously really good, so so we expect obviously further high grade success certainly there. Um, and then mid year, we have a resource estimate update. Um, so we expect resource growth there, obviously, um, perhaps beyond the five million ounce mark. Um, knock on wood. And then. Um, The Real Truth Machine uh, delivers with the PFS in the fourth quarter of next year on Delamar.
0: George, thank you very much. If you like what you hear, please tell a friend and don't forget to subscribe through iTunes or all your various podcast channels. Follow me on Twitter at Michael McRae. That's McRae with two C's. Niels is Niels underscore C. And Paul is at CGS 2020 V. Up next, our interview with Brian Belsky. He is Chief Investment Strategist at BMO Capital Markets.
5: Brian Belski, Chief Investment Strategist at BMO Capital Markets, joins us today to give us this market outlook and talk about investment strategy for the U.S. and Canada. Brian, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure speaking with you today.
4: Thanks so much for having us.
5: Let's start with your market outlook, and uh, we can start with your uh, baseline assumptions for what you expect to happen in the U.S. next year that will set us up for your, uh, your predictions for the stock markets.
4: Well, we recently published our our year ahead forecast for both Canada and the United States. Uh, Going back and doing this for 30 years, it's my 23rd forecast on the S&P 500 that I'm publishing as the lead strategist, and ninth uh, one on Canada since we joined uh, BMO Financial Group. With respect to the U.S. stock market, we believe that we're going to see another year of the unprecedented bull market. Uh, For those that are not familiar with our call, we believe that U.S. stocks entered a 20-year bull market in 2009. We've remained consistent on that call. And in fact, we believe the lows uh, in terms of the price of the stock market that were made around the globe, but especially in the the United States on March 23, 2020, uh, instituted uh, and really represented uh, the kickstart, what I like to call the control-alt-delete-reset, of the bull into the next 10 years, coming out of what was a 30 plus day cyclical bear market, an unprecedented downside brought unprecedented upside. And in fact, on March 23rd that day, we published a research report saying that that indeed was the low for the year, that stocks would rally 50% from those lows and that that actual overreaction rhetoric filled and fear-driven market move uh, was really going to kickstart the next 10 years of the bull market. So we published our piece on November 19th in terms of our forecast for 2021 with respect to the United States stock market and the S P 500. Our price target is 4,200 on $175 of earnings. So that equates to around 35% upside in earnings growth and around 10 to 15% of price appreciation using the unprecedented term once again, 2020 was an unprecedented year in many ways with respect to society, the stock market, uh, and everything that we've had to go through. In 2021, we're gonna see unprecedented earnings growth as we come off of these lower bases and as we start to go slowly back into uh, work mode. Now, 2021 is not gonna be the end all be all in terms of quote unquote normalization. We think this is gonna take uh, two or three years but we do believe that we're going to see more of a broadening out of market performance across sectors through most of 2017, 18 and 19, we had such strong concentration of performance with respect to communication services and technology. These are areas uh, from a strategist perspective that we have been very bullish on for several years. We maintain our secular bullish call over the next three to five years in communication services and technology. However, For 2021, we have, quote-unquote, neutralized those positions into a market weight stance, given the fact that both sectors add up to 40% of the market. And we do believe that we can see other more cyclical growth areas uh, begin to expand their fundamentals and broaden out their performance. With respect to sectors, that brings us to an overweight stance for 2021 in consumer discretionary, financials, and industrials neutral, or market-weight areas like consumer staples, communication services, technology, materials, and healthcare, which leaves us underweight in the United States energy, utilities and REITs. The utilities and REITs side of things, we favor utilities a little over REITs. I'm sorry, you you REITs over utilities given that that they're more economically sensitive. Uh, And we do believe that U.S. energy stocks are in a secular decline and need much higher oil prices to work. For Canada, uh, we believe that we're going to see another year of positive returns. And our theme for Canada has been for several years, as America goes, so goes Canada. We want you to focus on those stocks whose business operations are more levered to the United States. And we believe that Canada will attain a price target of 19500 by year end, 2021, on earnings of $1,100 that leaves us overweight sectors like financials, consumer discretionary and industrials. If you take a look at those companies that make up those sectors and select areas that, that make up those sectors, the ones that are more centered toward the United States in terms of their fundamental properties, we believe those are the ones that are going to continue to outperform. And earnings growth from a, from a longer term perspective actually is going to be a little bit higher than the United States. And so therefore, we think that that Canada, believe it or not, is undiscovered value territory, and it's kind of a backdoor way to own the United States. Now, in 2019, we were very bullish on Canada. Uh, there was a lot of skeptics out there. Canada ended up being a top five developed market uh, market in 2019. In 2020, we saw Canada keep pace with the United States for the first half of the year and then kind of lose pace the second half of the year out uh, until the last seven or eight weeks where the Canadian dollar kind of strengthened. We've seen strong moves in financials, um, and we think that the, ca- the catch-up trade, at least for the next three to six months, is especially warranted for Canada over the United States.
5: Okay. Brian, let's talk about some of the assumptions that you made for uh, going back to the U.S. markets first. So in your report, you've written that uh, one or more vaccines will be publicly available sometime uh, during the first half of the year. Uh, at least one more round of fiscal stimulus is underway, around a trillion dollars policy uncertainty will be declining and that the yield curve continues to steepen. Uh, Now, can you walk us through some of these assumptions here, starting with the vaccine? Now, economists that I've spoken to have said that, yes, a vaccine is expected to be rolled out, but the effectiveness of such a vaccine is limited, especially since not everybody will be getting one right away. Uh, Can you comment on that?
4: Well, I think mean, economists need to to uh, analyze the economy and stop analyzing kind of what's going on in the health side of things. I think that's what made everybody so nervous uh, and fearful in the first quarter. Remember, some of these very same economists uh, were telling us that telling the world that we're going into the next Great Depression and to yeah. sell stocks. And that didn't really work out. So I always caution people to stay in their sandbox. I think equity people should talk about equities, fixed income people should talk about fixed income, and, and economists should talk about the economy. No one really knows exactly what human nature is going to, how, how humans are going to employ what happens with a vaccine. Be that as it may, what are, what are the facts? The facts are we have two vaccines right now. We're probably gonna have somewhere along the lines of four or five given where the pipelines are. We have at least two strong therapeutics to treat the virus. And so we're probably going to have four or five by then. And as we said in our in our formal comments with respect to rolling out on the market, this is going to take some time in terms of transitioning back to normal. I don't think a a vaccine or four vaccines are the end all be all to make people more um, comfortable with going back to work. This is going to be a longer term process. And so that's why I think economic growth rates may be slower, but the stock market will be ahead of that, just as it was in 2021. So I think we're set, set up for our core assumptions with respect to the vaccine to underpromise, and overdeliver. I'd rather be conservative on the vaccine yeah. than uh, call the vaccine an end-all be-all, David.
5: Do you think earnings this year really caught up with prices in terms of growth?
4: Absolutely not, absolutely not. Um, typically what you see, and traditionally, I think of many investors have forgot, stocks lead earnings which lead the economy. And I think uh, that's the circle of life in investing. And what happened was, given the fact that the majority of companies in the first quarter in the S&P 500 cut their guidance, uh, analysts have not had a lot of guidance. And what's happened, David, in, in earnings revisions, all analysts have been doing all year long of trying to catch up to where earnings have come. Earnings have come back a little bit faster than everybody thought. And it's still this mode of under-promise and over-deliver. And so that's why I think that earnings in, in totality are still lower than projections in our 35% Number actually might be too low for next year in terms of the growth rate.
5: Yeah, well, this is the other. Th- this is the other counter argument that I've heard, which is that uh, price earnings this year have uh, the ratio has been overblown, and so that really calls for a uh, reset of prices downwards. Uh, can you comment on that?
4: I'd love to comment on that. That's short-sighted thinking and more ana- analytically and academically dri- driven drink, uh, thinking. Uh, the market and in, in, uh, macro economists and strategists have been too focused on quantitative variables and macro variables for 20 years. These are the same people that have been wrong for 10 years and missed the entire bull market between 2009 and, and, and February of 2020 because they've been focused on macro variables and focused on academics. If you take a look at a 24 times uh, PE ratio at zero interest rates, okay, and record high risk premiums, it's telling you to buy stocks. So this, This uh, academic way of looking at the market by only looking at valuation, David, is a trap because what do we know? We know this, and it's very clear based on the analysis, PEs work over a several year time period in terms of market performance does not work on the near term. In fact, valuation as a metric and as a factor is one of the worst factors in terms of forward stock performance.
5: Yeah, I've heard that too. So uh, walk us through some of the indicators that you look out for then.
4: Well, we look at uh, good old-fashioned bottoms-up stock picking, and I think that's what's going to lead the next bull market. And we said on March 23rd, actually, that the makeup of the bull market would be very different, especially in terms of portfolio construction. So it goes back into actually really knowing what the company does about their management, about their style, what kind of product or service they're making, what kind of earnings uh, do, will deliver cash flow or cash flow will deliver earnings, and and what vol- what what revenue really looks like. And instead of screening for the market and, and, and trading in a momentum-type fashion, David, which we, of course, have been doing for 10 years. So this is a bottoms-up, good old-fashioned stock picking side of things from the fundamental perspective. I think too many people are focused on trying to buy or sell the stock market based on on the ism or employment remember these are all macro variables that are dated and we have so many people and so many algorithms and so many etfs that are following macro of course it's going to be wrong
5: i think a lot of investors who don't know how to pick stocks uh flock to indices and index funds for the same reason that i just mentioned they don't know they don't know how to pick bottoms up stocks in the um old-fashioned way that you discussed and the concern is that next year uh should biggest stocks not perform as well as they did this year, the entire index isn't gonna get dragged up like we saw in 2020. Uh, I mean, can, can, you, uh, can you elaborate as to why that belief may or may not be true?
4: Well, just look at technology, David. If you take a look at technology with a very high market cap and weightings in the indices of Apple and Microsoft, our call on those two names are to maintain those names. And when the market goes up away from your core position as a portfolio manager, you trim a little of your position. And when the market goes down and your position goes down, you buy a little bit more to maintain your core position. But what does that mean for the smaller stocks that we would call more structural growth stocks and technology, whether or not it's PayPal or Shopify or NVIDIA or Visa or MasterCard or Adobe or Salesforce? Those stocks are are extremely smaller on a market cap perspective relative to Apple and Microsoft. And that's where you should be building your position. So I think that the performance with respect to not only fundamentally performing, but from a price performance standpoint, can, will, and should be brought, uh, picked up by these other areas as the market continues to broaden out its overall performance.
5: What are some of the risks to the markets then?
4: The risk of the markets. everybody turning bullish. Now, there's a lot of things out there in the press. As long as they get pushback back like you're you're pushing back. that You're talking to people in terms of all these economists, and all these people being negative on valuations and earnings. Mm-hmm. If you look at your Apple machine or whatever you use, your BlackBerry machine for news, nine out of the 10 stories in the stock market are negative and we're hitting all time highs. Yeah. And so if you take a look at if you take a look at forecast by strategists around the world for 2021, they're all over the place. Some are bullish, some are bearish. I kind of like that. If everyone was bullish, I'd be worried. So I think looking at surveys, David, like investors intelligence or, or put-to-call ratios uh, are not the right way, or certainly watching TV, are certainly not the way to be to be building portfolios in terms of sentiment. You need to talk to your clients. So I will tell you that if I talk to 10 clients a day, nine of them are bearish. Nine of them are worried about the market. Some of that is because they missed the market move, but some of it is that they're gun-shy and, and, and completely missed the big move off the lows in, in March and have underperformed for the last few years.
5: Yeah. What about, uh, what about on the um, geopolitical front, the risks there internationally? Mm-hmm. One of the assumptions you've written is that uh, risks on trade are likely to decline. Can you, can you elaborate on the assumption there?
4: Well, what's really interesting is that Mr. Biden's platform with respect to President Trump's is not too different with respect to how he's going to deal with China and the like, and but the, the, Mr. Biden is not necessarily telegraphing that. But if you actually look at the platform, it's not that different. But clearly, the saber rattling that really uh, engulfed what happened with, in terms of President Trump's tariffs, spooked the markets in terms of international growth. And I think heading into more of a diplomatic uh, Mr. Biden uh, candidacy and pre- uh, presidency, I'm sorry, uh, which is the proof is in the pudding. He was he was in Congress. Uh, for almost 50 years and knows how to negotiate and knows how to play the political uh, process. And I think that will bode well in terms of back and forth trade relations and all, uh, all the other international kind of malaise that has uh, really defined uh, the saber rattling of, of the President Trump administration.
5: OK, so you think we're going to be out of a recession uh, soon then is uh, basically a, <clears throat> what, what I gather from your thoughts.
4: Well, again, I, I'm not an economist, but according to our economists, we had a two-month recession. So we, uh, we're already out of the recession. And so okay. whether or not that if we start to see an economic recovery, David, I think that's the bigger answer. And given the fact that we're still kind of struggling with respect to how we're going to get unemployment down, we're still kind of struggling with a potential stimulus package between now and year end. We don't know exactly what the stimulus is going to be looking like under the new Biden administration. So there are some near-term risks. But again, I think trying to time the market, David, uh, over the next few months is extremely dangerous. We're longer-term investors. We always look out 12 months, and we think stock prices are higher 12 months from today.
5: I noticed in one of your assumptions that, uh, well, I noticed in your list of assumptions, one of them is not monetary policy uh, stimulus. And uh, you've put down fiscal stimulus. Is monetary stimulus behind us in terms of a driver?
4: Well, I think some of the levers that both the Bank of Canada and the Federal Reserve, there's other things that they can do. And they, and they will do if uh, Chairman Paul in particular said that they stand, quote unquote, at the ready to do additional things, whether or not that is uh, additional security purchases or not. Uh, but it's pretty clear that the Fed is not going to be doing anything in terms of changing its policy uh, for at least three years. That's according to our uh, economic department and many others. And so that essentially does mean, David, that they are being accommodated. They're just not going out there and doing the same type of aggressive uh, purchases or repurchases of securities like they were, let's say, between 2007 and 2014. The driver, really, of what we've seen in terms of money coming into the system has really been the fiscal stimulus side.
5: Okay. So then uh, going back to what you said earlier, when you turn bullish on the stock market post-March this year, uh, what were some of the main drivers that you were looking at that pushed equities up? W- because, most, again, most people I've talked to cited monetary stimulus as the main reason as to why equities have improved. But it sounds like you saw some fundamentals uh, uh, improve as well. Is that, is that correct to say?
4: Uh, to be clear, we were bullish all year. And to be, to okay. be bearish for 33 days, uh, we don't make daily or monthly calls, David. David. Uh, we, we believe that the US stock market was in a secular bull market the entire time just th- just because we, we had a 20 or a 30 33 day bear sure. market. I mean, sure. uh, pretty unprecedented, uh, almost impossible to call. So what we saw versus others was we weren't focused on macro variables. We weren't focused on the fear factor. We were focusing on the resiliency of Canadian US companies period that they would get through that that these were the best equity assets in the world. Again, period. So this whole notion of the only reason why the market's up is because of stimulus. So you have to answer yourself this question. I'm just a common sense kid from Minnesota, right? So if you're given money to spend, you're going to spend on an asset. You're going to buy an asset, right? So what was the most attractive asset in the world? US stocks and Canadian stocks came along for the ride, period. So we, what's really interesting about this whole notion is, is that the market's only going up because of stimulus. Think about this, David. This year, again, 2020, we've had more outflows from equities than inflows. We've had more inflows to fixed income than outflows. Those are the facts. And so I think that there's uh, a notion uh, of neg- the negativity surrounding investing and Wall Street in general, has been a a dominant theme for 20 years. And this really began post the quote unquote technology wreck in the late 90s, early 2000s. And you've seen people do pretty much everything with their money except buy equities, meaning private equity, hedge funds, real estate, emerging markets, commodities. And equities really have been kind of left on the side of, 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 of the street. Even, even after going up for 10 years, equities are still hated. And so I believe that that sentiment still is going to be part of the driver, David. We're going to have some ebbs and flows with respect to this. But, but just to say that stimulus is making stocks go up, I think is too simple. If we learned anything in 2020, uh, life is not simple. The markets are not simple. So yeah. to make easy, simple assumptions, I, do, I believe that's wrong. Uh,
5: finally, safe haven assets. Were you surprised at the uh, surge in gold prices this year alongside? No. Equities?
4: Well, no, but from a, from, a, from a historical standpoint, clearly gold extended. I would think you want to trade gold like you do technology. What I mean by that is maintain your gold positions. Clearly, we're going to have a very big stimulus package, we believe in the first quarter from President Biden. uh, That will further uh, weaken the dollar and and lower interest rates. Uh, But I do believe, from a longer-term perspective, gold should be part of your longer-term portfolio. But again, on these super spikes in price, you peel back your position. And when the market goes down, build a little bit more gold.
5: Well, how do you feel about uh, the argument that as equities climb, you should be tapering off your gold holdings and going more into risk? I mean, if if I look at some of your baseline assumptions again, vaccine, um, less less uncertainty around policies, less uncertainty around trade wars. Those seem like risk-on measures that I should be taking as an investor and moving away from gold, right?
4: It's a, gr- it's a great point. But uh, what we said earlier, too, if the Federal Reserve is going to be um, very accommodative for another three years, that means that we're going to have low interest rates for a while. That will put in uh, a bid in for gold, or at least a floor for gold. So again, you maintain your gold position. You're not building your gold position. So on rallies, you sell a little bit, and, and when gold goes down, you buy a little bit.
5: Okay, Brian, thank you so much for your time today. That was a great talk. Appreciate it.
4: Thank you. Thank you very much.
5: Thank you for watching Kiko News. I'm David Lin. cycle.